hard to believe that we have already walked through large, really large portions of the Old Testament, seeing how all of Scripture ultimately reveals God's glory and points us to the person of Jesus. Granted, we have not covered every little person, story, or detail. We have seen some of the greatest Old Testament stories through a lens of seeing Christ as the true and better. And though there's still a lot more we could cover, we'll finish our time in this series this morning in the very popular book of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Jonah is a very, very small book. In most of your Bibles, it'll probably only be a page or two, so it can be difficult to find. So I'm going to help you out. If you struggle to find it, we go from Ezekiel to Daniel to Hosea to Joel to Amos to Obadiah and then to Jonah. So if you can find any of those books, you should be able to find your way to Jonah. As you're turning there, I want to ask you all a question. By show of hands... How many of you are familiar with Jeffrey Dahmer? That's what I figured. Most people know who he is. Most people knew who he was before now. But with the release of a new Netflix series about him, his popularity and infamy have skyrocketed. Many of you may have lived through his crimes and heard about or watched his trial, punishment, and death as it was happening. For anyone who isn't aware... Or if you maybe just need a refresher, Jeffrey Dahmer was one of the most notorious serial killers the United States has ever seen. Not only uh, did he kill 17 homosexual men, he would dismember them, have sex with their corpses, eat different parts of their body and keep their heads as souvenirs to remember them. Jeffrey Dahmer did horrific things that should make our stomachs not up to think about. But towards the end of Jeffrey's life, something absolutely radical happened. A pastor by the name of Roy Ratcliffe began meeting with and ministering to Jeffrey in prison each week. And surprisingly, Jeffrey Dahmer professed Christ, was baptized And was discipled by Roy weekly until his death. This was a ridiculous turn of events. And many people actually questioned the validity of Dahmer's salvation. Could a demented, homosexual, murderous, necrophilic cannibal really be saved? This was a question asked at the time of Jeffrey's conversion. And it's a question many of you may be asking today. Actually, a member of Roy's congregation went on record saying, if Jeffrey Dahmer is going to heaven, then I don't want to be there. This is a bold statement, but it's coming from someone who knew and cared about the sick, vile, heinous sins of Jeffrey Dahmer. Maybe many of you share this same sentiment. Knowing all that Dahmer did, you can't fathom the idea of him being in heaven, unified with God for eternity. As we look to Jonah today, what we'll find is that Jonah shared the same sentiment towards the people of Nineveh as many have towards Jeffrey Dahmer. 
You see, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. They were some of the biggest enemies of the nation of Israel. But more than that, they were extremely violent and did some pretty terrible things. Just to give you a glimpse of who they were, the king of Assyria had a tradition that whenever they prevailed against another nation in war, he would behead the opposing king, put their head on a stake, and put it in the ground around the city walls of Nineveh as trophies of their victory. More than this, he would take the generals of the armies he's defeated, the ones that were living, and skin them alive so that they bled out like a lamb. And once they bled out, he'd chop off specific body parts and send them around the city to be trophied by the citizens. So make no mistake, this was a very, very evil city. It was the capital of one of the most deadly empires to ever exist. Nahum, another minor prophet in the Bible, says this about the city of Nineveh. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, Flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. It's very clear from history and from God's word that Nineveh was an evil city. So knowing this helps give us a better perspective into the story we see unfolding in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah is ultimately about a disobedient, hateful prophet who cannot stand that God loves his enemies. And in Jonah, we see a stark contrast between the God of salvation and his rebellious prophet. Coincidentally enough, through all of it, we see God's sovereign work and hand of grace on display. My prayer is that As we see all of these different pieces coming together, what we'll be left with is a beautiful portrait of Jesus, the true and better Jonah. So all that being said, let's actually read the book. I'm not going to make you stand because we are going to read the entire thing. So take a sip of your coffee, lock your mind in and let's read this crazy, crazy narrative. We'll start in chapter one. Verse 1, we'll read through the end of it. Jonah chapter 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots 
that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. That's interesting. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may relent and turn from the fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do them, and he did not do it. 
But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Father, Lord, your word is too wonderful for us to understand without illumination from the Spirit. Father, I pray now that as we dissect what's happening, you would open our eyes to the goodness of the truth of who you are, and we would see in all of it the glory of the gospel of Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. I know we just read a lot of scripture and there's also a lot that happens in these four short chapters. One of the biggest patterns that we see throughout the book is an action of God that's put on display and then the reaction and response from Jonah. And as we see each of these events unfold, we see more and more of God's glorious character while at the same time seeing more and more of Jonah's sinful, selfish disposition. Throughout the whole book, there are at least six ways in which God acts that shows who he is and at least six different responses from Jonah. We'll dive straight in, straight in, straight in, right in with number one, which is that God commissions his prophet. In the first few verses of the book, we see very clearly a commissioning of God to Jonah. God has seen the evil of Nineveh, and he wants his prophet to arise and go proclaim judgment on them. This is something that God did consistently throughout the Bible. He commissioned man after man after man to proclaim his word of judgment and or hope to people who needed to hear it. And even though God gave a very clear commission here to Jonah, we learn very quickly that Jonah actually ran from God. One of the first questions we would ask is, why would Jonah do this? 
I mean, we see later in chapter one that Jonah has a very clear knowledge of who God is. And he's seen God's authority, power and sovereignty over all things. So why would Jonah run from God? The author doesn't give us an answer in this moment, but we'll see a little later why this and everything else that happens in the book is so. But regardless of the reasoning, Jonah clearly runs away from God. So what happens when God calls his prophet to do something to accomplish his will and the prophet emphatically says no? Well, in Jonah, we learn that number two, God accomplishes his sovereign will no matter what. Isn't this such comforting news? Jonah is a perfect portrait of God working all things to accomplish his will. And he accomplishes his will even as Jonah does all he can to avoid it. Look at verses 4 through 17 of chapter 1 and consider this plot line. Jonah gets on a ship to go literally the opposite direction of Nineveh. God says, no problem. I'll just throw a huge storm on the sea. What does Jonah do in response to this? No worries. I'm just going to go sleep below deck. This storm doesn't concern me at all. And the captain finally goes and wakes up Jonah, asking if there's anything he could have done that would have upset the gods. And after this didn't prevail, they decided to throw dice to determine who is the reason for this storm. And what would you know? The lot fell on Jonah. And they said, who are you? What have you done? Jonah's, you know, nonchalant. Yeah, I'm a servant of uh, Yahweh, the God who made and is in control of everything. And well, he called me to go to these people and proclaim his judgment. But I just, yeah, I didn't really want to. So I got on this ship. And the mariners freak out at Jonah's sin. Well, what should we do? And Jonah's just like, yeah, just throw me overboard. Kill me. That should do the trick. But these mariners don't want to kill the guy, so they fought and fought and fought, and they could not overcome the storm that God had placed on the sea. So finally, they decide to give Jonah what he's asked for. They throw him into the sea to die. Seemingly, this is where the story should end. Jonah dies because he would rather his life end than do what God wants him to do. Nope. As Jonah is drowning, An imminent death is approaching. He's swallowed by a humongous fish. Like we know the story, so this isn't crazy to us, but he is eaten by a fish and his life is saved. Like if you got some Bible illiterate people who didn't know this story and said there's a man drowning in the bottom of the ocean, present them with like a jeopardy question and ask how was he rescued? And you put swallowed by fish on the answer sheet. No one is going to select that answer. This is ridiculous. He's swallowed by a fish. It could have, I mean, it could have been a whale. God could have enlarged a clownfish. In that. There's, no, there's no telling what happened. He's swallowed by a fish. And what we learn from this crazy back and forth of Jonah's terrible disposition and God's work is that nothing can be done to prevent God from accomplishing his sovereign will. And more than that, In this moment of God accomplishing his will, at the same time, we see that God does rescue his prophet from death. 
it's clear that at this point, this fish wasn't coincidence. It was the hand of God that actually saved Jonah from death. Even in the midst of Jonah's radical disobedience, God shows Jonah radical grace. And while Jonah was in a fish, we get a look into his prayer and we see actually that Jonah repents of his sin. So in this moment, we don't simply see God rescuing his prophet from death. We also see God redeeming his prophet from disobedience. Right here in this moment, swimming around in the guts of a fish, we see the marvelous grace of God extended to a sinner who is actively running away from him. In Romans 2, 4, Paul tells us that God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. And we see a beautiful display of that in this moment. Jonah is met with God's kindness and he repents. And then he's spit out by this great fish. And finally, we see number four, that God sends his prophet to his enemies. Finally, two chapters of disobedience and repentance. Jonah actually does what the Lord calls him to do. He goes to Nineveh and Jonah proclaims God's judgment on them. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And before Jonah got even a third of the way through the city, preaching this awful message, something miraculous happened. All of Nineveh had heard of this judgment and they repented from their sin. More than this, the king issued a decree that all people should fast from food and drink and for everyone, including himself, to sit in sackcloth and ashes, recognizing the wickedness of their sin and calling out to God. Think about this for a moment. The king of the most brutal, villainous city in the world is calling for this to happen. A man who slaughtered kings and nations and boasted in his triumph is now calling for all people to weep and repent. This brutal, horrible, arrogant king, when he hears of the judgment of God, takes off his crown, leaves his throne, falls to his knees and weeps and repents of his sin. When just last week he was holding the head of another man in his hand. He was once standing to boast before his people about the spoils of his victory. But now he sits before them weeping and calling all people to repent of their sin. And as they're repenting, he says these hope filled words. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Once the king made this statement, I just imagine Jonah and all the people of Nineveh sitting in angst, wondering what would happen. And in verse 10 of chapter 3, we see the marvelous grace of God on display. Scripture tells us that God relented of the disaster he had planned, and he did not do it. But this does more than simply show God relenting from disaster. It ultimately shows, number five, that God saves whomever he wishes. It may seem odd that God didn't go. Now, let me make sure this repentance is genuine before I relent of my wrath. But no, make no mistake. God didn't save them simply because he saw their repentance and decided, you know what? I guess I'll save them. 
Though repentance is required, we must never think we are the initiators in the saving work of God. In Jonah 2.9, the pinnacle point of this book, Jonah himself declares salvation belongs to the Lord. God doesn't wait for our initiation and then reach down to save us. If he waited on us, nothing would ever happen. The, our problem is not that we, don't need, that we need a change of heart. We need God to give us a new heart. God does the initiating. He pulls us to himself. He graciously allows us to repent. And he forgives and saves us from the destruction we deserve. Think about the story in Jonah. Who sent Jonah to Nineveh? God. And then look at all God did in order to get Jonah to them. He relentlessly pursues Jonah in order that he would unconditionally save Nineveh. And who's the one that tells Jonah what message to declare to the people? God. And who opened the eyes of the Assyrians to believe what Jonah's proclaiming? God. God sovereignly worked everything to happen exactly as it did so the people of Nineveh would believe in him. And that he would be able to pour out his abundant mercy on them. You would think this reality reaps joy, but it didn't. In fact, there is no rejoicing seen here. The very next words we see in the story of Jonah are, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah was furious at God's saving grace. Now you may think, why, why would Jonah feel this way? But hold on, don't get ahead of yourselves. Think for a moment back to who these Ninevites were. Vile people who beheaded kings, skinned alive their enemies, and trophied their enemies' body parts as some sort of sick souvenir. They were awful people. In this moment, we learn from Jonah why he sought to flee from God in the first place. Jonah says, I knew you were gracious, merciful, patient, full of steadfast love. I knew you would relent of the disaster that you pointed towards them. I wanted them to suffer. I wanted them to be destroyed. These are strong words from the heart of Jonah. But I believe many of us may be harboring these same kind of words inside of us. Think about the woman from Roy Ratcliffe's church. Jeffrey Dahmer is in heaven and I don't want to be there. What about you? Do you feel this way? <laughs> Really? <laughs> Do you feel I know I know Willie's answer. Do you feel this way about Jeffrey Dahmer and even Nineveh? Is it uneasy? Genuinely, is it uneasy for you to think that they might be in heaven? Are you okay with standing with the idea of standing shoulder to shoulder with Jeffrey Dahmer with your hands lifted in adoration of Jesus? What about if God radically saved someone like Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin? Would you as an individual be okay with this? Would you be okay with calling these men your brothers in Christ? Or would you rather them all just burn in hell? 
Do you even think it's possible for these men to be saved? And if they were, how many of us today would look to God just as Jonah did and say, why save them? Look at the evil they've done. They are vile and they are wicked. They deserve to die. They don't deserve to be saved. And that's when God would close our mouths and say, that is the entire point. The whole point of the gospel is that I'm saving people who don't deserve to be saved. I'm giving grace to people who deserve my wrath. I'm giving love to people who deserve my hatred. I'm giving peace to people who deserve destruction. I'm giving unity to people who deserve separation. I'm giving life to people who deserve death. That's the whole point of the gospel of grace. And what Jonah did in this moment and what we do when we ask these idiotic questions is we elevate who we think we are and we nullify the relentless grace of God. Here's the truth. The reality that God saves whomever he wishes will not be good news to you if you think you are pretty good. I deserve to breathe. I deserve to go to work, go to school. I deserve a family. I deserve to have a nice home and clothes. I deserve a, you know, a decent, moderate income. I deserve a nice phone and lots of friends. No, you don't. You deserve God's wrath and nothing else. But praise be to the God of all grace who doesn't use what we do as the criteria for if we can be saved. Listen, we aren't qualified for salvation because of what we've done or haven't done. We are qualified for salvation because of the great love of the God to whom salvation belongs. I want to say that one more time. We aren't qualified for salvation because of what we've done or haven't done. We are qualified for salvation because of the great love of the God to whom salvation belongs. When we are able to see how undeserving Jonah was and how undeserving we really are, the question we will ask will shift from God, why would you save them to God, why would you ever save me? But knowing God at the end of Jonah, God graciously gives us the answer to this question. And in this answer, we see number six, that God reveals his heart for all people. He reveals his heart for all people through an object lesson. As Jonah is sitting on the hillside waiting to see what would come of Nineveh, God appointed a plant to sprout up and shield Jonah's head from the heat. Then shortly after, he appointed a worm to destroy the plant so that it would wither. And the heat made Jonah become faint. Then Jonah, being as petty as he was, shouts out, I wish I could just die. It'd be better for me to die than to live. But then God digs to the roots of Jonah's heart. We learn that Jonah cared for this plant that he did not labor for or make grow, that came and went like a flash, all because this plant provided Jonah what he wanted. So Jonah only had a heart for himself. But in contrast to this, God shows that much more than a plant, 
He has care and compassion for all people, even the most vile and undeserving. And it's his chief desire to show grace to all people that they would be saved. First Timothy 2, 4 says God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And it's actually this heart of God that causes the whole book to play out how it does. God's heart for Nineveh stirs the original call to go. God's heart for the mariners, remember them, spared their lives in the midst of the storm. God's heart for Jonah saved his life as he's drowning in the ocean. God's heart for Jonah recommissions him to do what he once refused. God's heart for Nineveh relents of the disaster that they deserve and saves them. And God's heart for Jonah graciously gave him gospel perspective. Everything God does in Jonah and everywhere else in the Bible and in history is out of zeal for his own glory and love for all peoples. This deeply matters for us because we are all peoples. And in love for all peoples, God sent Christ, the true and better Jonah. So let's take a moment and consider Jesus through the lens of the book of Jonah. At the beginning of Jonah, we saw God commissioning his prophet to go and speak his words to Nineveh. But Jonah didn't want to, so he ran from God. In the New Testament, we see God commissioning Jesus. But what did God commission Jesus to do and how did Jesus respond? Well, first, God commissioned Jesus to reveal the Father. Hebrews 1.3, Scripture says, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. In John 14.9, Jesus Himself said, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. God sent Jesus so that He would reveal the glory and character of the Father so that we could see Him and know Him. Second, God commissioned Christ to do away with sin. Hebrews 9.26 says Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 1 Peter 2.24 says he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. God sent Jesus to do away with sin because no one else and nothing else could sufficiently satisfy God's wrath. And third, God commissioned Jesus to destroy the works of the devil. First John 3.8 says more clearly than I ever could. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Since creation, Satan has been scheming to build himself a kingdom. But Jesus has been sent by God to destroy the kingdom of the enemy and establish the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is commissioned by God to Reveal the Father to do away with sin and to destroy the works of the devil. But what is Jesus' response to this commissioning? Well, he did not run as Jonah did. Jesus completely submitted to God. And in Jonah, if you think back, even as he ran away, we learn that God accomplishes his sovereign will in spite of his prophet's rebellion. In Christ, we learn that God his, accomplishes his sovereign will because Jesus perfectly fulfills it. So not only has God sent Jesus into the world, 
Jesus has accomplished all the Father sent him to do completely. Look at Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, 38 says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. And then in John 17, verses 1 through 4, Jesus, as he's praying to the Father, says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. When we look to Scripture, we see very clearly that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. He's done all that the Father asked of him. But to what end? Like, why does this ultimately matter? Well, according to Jesus' words that we just read, this was so God would be glorified and so we could have life. This is a glorious end and no greater result can be achieved on earth than these two things. But the question this Jonah narrative has yet to answer is how? How does Jesus perfectly fulfill the Father's will? How does Jesus reveal the Father? How does Jesus do away with sin? How does Jesus destroy the work of the devil? I mean, how does this happen? Well, believe it or not, Jonah gives us the answer to these questions. In Jonah, God accomplished his will by rescuing his prophet from death and leading Jonah to repent from his sin. And Jesus, God accomplishes his ultimate will because Jesus died in our place so that we could repent from sin. This is the how behind all that Jesus has accomplished. God is ultimately revealed in the cross of Christ. Sin is ultimately defeated in the cross of Christ. And Satan is ultimately destroyed in the cross of Christ. At the foot of the cross, we see all of God's holy righteous attributes on display. His holiness to require perfection to have unity with him. His justness to punish sin. His love to crush his own son for our sake. His mercy to die on behalf of wicked sinners. His grace to give undeserved favor to us because of Jesus. His sovereignty and wisdom to orchestrate all of history to lead to this divine moment. When we look to the cross, we see a perfect, full, complete portrait of God's holy character. At the foot of the cross, sin is ultimately defeated. The only way sin can be defeated is if there is a perfect, spotless, blameless, sacrificial lamb slain for sin. No one is able to be this sacrifice apart from Christ. Because Christ fulfilled the law and met all the holy requirements, he is the only one capable of defeating sin. And as he breathed his last and said, it is finished, he defeated sin once for all. At the foot of the cross, Satan is ultimately destroyed All the schemes of Satan appeared to be paying off as Jesus was dying. But once Jesus died, the unthinkable victory came. 
Just as Jonah emerged from the fish, Jesus emerged from the grave, having come back to life. Three days after he died, he was alive again. And in this resurrection, he conquered death, he conquered hell, and he conquered Satan. The cross is the means used for Jesus to accomplish God's will. So as Jonah was rescued for the sake of God's mission, Jesus was relentlessly crushed for the sake of God's mission. In Jonah's story, God sends Jonah to his enemies, and as a result, Jonah proclaims God's judgment on them. But in Jesus' story, God sent Christ to his enemies, and Jesus endured God's judgment for them. This is ultimately how, we, uh, how sin has been defeated. Consider the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Later in this passage, Isaiah tells us that it pleased God to crush him. This is a bold statement, but it's true. And this statement is true because it's in this crushing that sin was defeated. Jesus defeated sin by bearing the whole entire cup of God's wrath on the cross. And while Jonah reluctantly proclaimed God's judgment to sinners, Jesus so graciously endured God's judgment for sinners. And it's because of this gracious, miraculous work that God is actually able to save whomever he wishes. Salvation is available to all because Jesus suffered the full wrath of God for sin. This truth made Jonah furious at God's saving grace. But Jesus, Jesus rejoices in God's saving grace. In Luke 19, we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem because they haven't seen that he is the Messiah. And this is the exact opposite of Jonah, isn't it? Jonah sat on a hill outside of Nineveh and looked out over the city, wanting God to somehow still bring judgment on them. When he didn't, Jonah was furious that God saved them. But Jesus, from the hilltop, looked out over Jerusalem which is supposed to be God's holy city and was heartbroken that they had ignored their savior. Think also about Hebrews 12 too. It says that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Jesus was able to endure the cross because in his mind was the joy of redeemed saints gathered around the throne of God, worshiping his glorious name. Jesus' greatest joy is seeing his glory in the salvation of undeserving people. And this joy was the driving factor behind all that Jesus did. And this is where we come to see the last contrast between Jonah and Jesus. All of Jonah's actions were the result of a heart that was sinfully consumed with himself. All of Jesus' actions, though, are because Jesus' heart beats for God's glory and beats for the salvation of the world. All Jesus did was because of his love for the Father and because of his love for you. 
There is none like this Jesus. The purpose of the book of Jonah is to show us an insufficient shadow of the Savior who was to come. Jonah was rebellious. He was selfish. He was sinful and he hated the people God sent him to. But Jesus is obedient. He is selfless. He is sinless. And he came to us because of his great love. Jonah had to repent in order to proclaim judgment. But Jesus endured judgment that we would be able to repent. Church, my question to you this morning is, are you a humble recipient of God's love and grace through Christ? If not, I would urge you to look to Christ and trust him. He's the spotless lamb of God who took the wrath of God that you deserve so that you could be brought into right standing with the father. He's invited you to trust him. His work is sufficient. His grace is extended. All you must do is repent and believe in his name. If you have been a humble recipient of God's love and grace through Christ, I urge you deeply to never lose sight of your daily need for grace. Don't ever be the person who says, if this person, if X is in heaven, I don't want to be there. May you never forget that nothing you have done or will do qualifies you to stand before God. Every moment... Every breath, every action is God's grace to you and in you and through you. You are no greater than anyone you will ever encounter. God called Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim a warning of judgment on them due their sin. Through Christ, God has called us to proclaim a message of hope to the world. And this message is that Christ became sin so that anyone who trusts in him might become the righteousness of God. May we be a people who always rejoice in the good news of Jesus, who is the true and better Jonah.